Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday. You're Friday up. Eve, sister. Yes, I am off tomorrow for my daughter's <laughs> first play. Yay. This is very exciting. You're looking particularly beautiful this morning. Thank you. Oh, gosh, you're so with you. sweet. It's true. We have a lot going on this morning, so let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, June 1st. Oh, also my mom's birthday. Today? Happy birthday, Happy Mom. Happy birthday. Uh, but this really significant news first here on CNN, caught on tape, federal prosecutors have Donald Trump, in his own words, acknowledging he held on to a classified Pentagon document after he left the White House and told people he couldn't share it with them. This is first on CNN reporting. What does it mean for the investigation? And speaking of Trump, his former number two, Mike Pence, about to officially take him on for the White House. Pence will officially announce his run next week, as will former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. The House overwhelmingly passing that debt limit deal in a move to avert a national and global economic crisis. The fate of the bill, which of course garnered fierce backlash from the far right and the far left. Well, its fate now lies in the Senate. And to basketball, the NBA Finals start tonight. The Denver Nuggets take on the Miami Heat in Game 1. Sex in the City fans rejoice. Woohoo! The band is really getting back together. Samantha, in for the reboot. We're told it's only for one scene in the Season 2 finale, but that still counts. What we know about Kim Cattrall's quick return, and just like that. CNN This Morning starts right now. I can't wait. I'm super excited. Here is where we start this morning with, again, first on CNN reporting, sources tell us there is a tape, an audio recording of former President Donald Trump admitting that he held on to a classified Pentagon document and suggesting he wants to share that information, but he's limited by his post-presidency ability to declassify records. So there's a whole lot there. CNN has not listened to the recording, but special counsel Jack Smith has it in his possession and sources describe it as a, quote, important piece of evidence in the possible case, possible charges against Trump. Here's what there is. It undercuts his argument that he declassified everything, and it shows that he knew he wasn't supposed to share sensitive information with others. We are told the recording is about two minutes long from July of 2021, and in it, Trump talks about a document involving a potential attack on Iran. So Abby Phillip asked Trump attorney Jim Trusty about this last night. He deflected. Did you know that this tape existed? And are there others? I am not going to try a case based on the government leaks. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed helped break this story. Good morning to you. So walk us through what is in those two minutes. So let's set the scene here. This was a meeting that occurred at Trump's Bedminster Golf Club in the summer of 2021. And among the people in attendance were several Trump aides and two people working on an autobiography of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Meadows was not in attendance at this meeting, but during this time, Trump was in the habit of having his aides record conversations with journalists, writers, anyone working on a book. So he was aware that he was being recorded. And while we have not heard this tape, multiple sources have described it to us, and they say that on this recording, 
Trump makes it clear that he is still in possession of at least one classified document from the Pentagon describing a possible attack on Iran. Now, we're told that you can hear paper rustling as if he is waving some sort of document, but it's unclear if it's the document he is referring to or something else for theatrical effect. But most importantly, for investigators, on this recording, Trump is heard acknowledging the limits of his ability to declassify materials once he was out of the White House, which, of course, undercuts every public defense he and his attorneys have provided for why he was still in possession of some of the nation's most sensitive secrets. And Paula, this is really significant, I would say, for two reasons. Number one, because we're talking about a recording, not simply witness testimony, but also because of what it shows based on the other public comments that have been made by the former president and his legal team. That's exactly right, Erica. Uh, Over the past year, he and his attorneys, they've given various, at times, conflicting explanations for why he did not intentionally uh, retain this sensitive information. They've said that he had a standing declassification order, so anything that left the Oval Office was automatically declassified. He told Fox News that he declassified things just by thinking about doing so. But his lawyers have also told Congress that he was only in possession of these materials because it was so chaotic at the end of the administration and he wasn't aware. But this recording, it really shows that none of those statements are are true. And this also exposes the true legal jeopardy that the former president is facing. Also important to note that most of the reporting up until now has focused on classified materials down in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. But here in this recording, it reveals that at least one classified document was up in New Jersey. Now, Trump's attorneys searched uh, Bedminster late last year. They didn't find anything, but again, raises new questions. How did that document get there and where did it go? So many questions. Really phenomenal reporting, Paula. Thank you. Joining us now, Bradley Moss, a national security attorney and deputy executive director of the James Madison Project. Good to have you with us this morning. Based on what we have learned from Paula and her team's reporting overnight, what sticks out to you here? Are there potential charges that you see? Yeah, what sticks out to me is the comprehensive nature of this factual background that Jack Smith appears to have been compiling in the case that he does choose to bring indictments. We've always expected there would be an obstruction angle. That we've already heard tons of media reporting about. We've seen a lot about that in the search warrant back in August 2022. But this shows not just that Donald Trump had brought documents, classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, but he knew he had them. He knew that they were still classified and he knew he couldn't disseminate them to other people. This goes to the intent. This underlies and undercuts the the, uh, potential defense issue that he was gonna raise of he had automatically declassified it or he didn't know. No, he clearly knew and that is knowing and willful retention of national defense information. That's the Espionage Act provision right there. Yeah, let's talk about the Espionage Act and where this that could play in, because I thought it was interesting last night, um, former Defense Department legal expert um, Ryan Goodman brought that up to CNN. But before we get to that, listen to this sound. This is some sound of the former president talking about how he believes he could or did, he says, class declassify documents. There doesn't have to be a process, as I understand it. You know, there's different people say different things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. No, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. 
When it comes to your documents, did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified what do you mean not after. Really? Not, not that I can think of. Can you talk about that? Because the reporting is that this memo has to do with Iran. And when you look at the Espionage Act, it prohibits the sharing of information that could harm the U.S. or give an advantage to foreign countries. How would a charge under the Espionage, Espionage Act look? Yes, yeah, so the Espionage Act predates the modern classification system. It came out of World War I, and it doesn't actually refer to classified information per se. It refers to national defense information. Now, generally speaking, whenever there is a prosecution for leaking or mishandling or stealing classified documents, they still use the Espionage Act and they demonstrate it qualifies as national defense information. But it doesn't have to be. But here's the thing. Donald Trump has a slight bit of truth in his statements, and this is the most dangerous place for him. Yes, when he was president, he had all kinds of authority to declassify documents, but the courts have weighed in saying there has to be proper declassification. Every single time it's been handled, there has to actually be the demarking, the, note of the documentation of the declassification. He can't just walk off with it as he flew down to Mar-a-Lago and say it's declassified. It's not the way it works. He understands a small bit of the legal theory, and he's taken that to the extreme, and that's going to be his undoing here. B is undoing in terms of all those past statements that are made. What about what we've heard from his attorneys? Because what's interesting, too, is his attorneys have avoided saying, it seems, as much in court that, that he followed every single legally mandated procedure. They've been very careful, understandably, on their language. Yeah, so this legal defense that we've been hearing on TV and I heard James Trusty last night saying, I'm not trying this case in the media as mm -hmm. he sat there very long with your colleagues last night and tried it in the media, is what I would describe as a political set of talking points masquerading as a legal defense. He's not going to say just how, you know, on point, how much, he, how much did or did not happen, probably because he doesn't really know one way or the other. But these are arguments they're not likely to make in court because they would face potential uh, ethical issues issues if they were to misrepresent things to the judge. That's why they refused to do so when dealing with the special master, where they kept balking and refusing to indicate whether or not Trump had actually declassified these documents and if they could prove it. They don't want to get to that point because they don't ultimately have anything other than Trump saying, yeah, I looked at him and said in my mind, oh, it's declassified. They know that's not going to work in the end, but they can play this game on the media in the interim. Bradley Moss, great to have you with us this morning. Thank you. The race to avoid a catastrophic U.S. default is now in the hands of the U.S. Senate. Last night, House lawmakers voted to raise the debt limit through the end of the year. Yeas are 314, the nays are 117. The bill is passed. Without objection, a motion. That 117 voting no was made up of 71 Republicans and 46 Democrats that voted against the bill, arguing there were just too many concessions given to the other side. Now the Senate has until Monday to get this thing to the president's desk before the U.S. could default. Our Lauren Fox following all of this on Capitol Hill. So it's through the hurdle of the House, now to the Senate. We've heard uh, senators publicly saying they'll oppose it, like Bernie Sanders, but in the same breath saying, but it will pass. I'm just you know, essentially saying this because I don't believe in it. Well, Poppy, last night's vote in the House of Representatives was really a blowout, and Kevin McCarthy had a huge victory in part because he got far more than just a majority 
of his Republican majority. That was a key hurdle for him to clear, really to secure the support from conservatives, some of whom did not back this legislation and were threatening his speakership. Now the hope from Republican and Democratic leaders in the Senate is that momentum is going to follow across the Capitol and really put them on a path to pass this very quickly. That is the hope, in part because we are bumping up against that deadline on Monday of June 5th, when the country could default on its debt. A couple of things at play here right now. There are a number of Republicans and Democrats who remain undecided about this legislation. There's also a huge question of how quickly the Senate is going to move. You heard yesterday from Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that he was hopeful that they could put this in motion and pass it as soon as Thursday or Friday, but you have to get a time agreement. And there are a number of members who want to have amendment votes. The big question and the big problem for an amendment vote is none of them actually can pass. Otherwise, you have to send this back over to the House and you are in a position where you would definitely miss that Monday deadline. So they have to have a couple of amendment votes. They have to get some kind of time agreement. How quickly that all comes together today, that is a huge question. And we're going to be watching very closely on what happens next. Poppy? No, no break for Lauren Fox no. as she tracks it all. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Overnight strikes in Kyiv have killed three people, including a child. We're live in Ukraine as talks of the country joining NATO ramp up. Plus, what CNN sources are saying about Mike Pence's plans to join the 2024 race for the White House. This morning, Ukrainian forces destroying all 10 missiles targeting Kyiv. Also reporting, however, that falling debris has resulted in the deaths of a nine-year-old girl, her mother, and another woman. Ukraine's Minister of Internal Affairs says all three deaths were tied, try, all three rather, tried to enter a bomb shelter that was closed. You may recall Russian President Vladimir Putin has said he launched this invasion to stop NATO from getting closer to the Russian border. Well, now NATO's Secretary General Stoltenberg says that is exactly what will happen. As late as last year, all allies agreed that Ukraine will become a member of this alliance. And, uh, and we are making con con concrete steps because uh, Ukraine is moving um, uh, towards NATO, meaning that they are coming closer and closer, uh, meaning that they are uh, moving from Soviet standards uh, to NATO standards, equipment, uh, doctrines. And we are help helping them doing that as we speak. CNN Sam Kylie joining us this morning live in eastern Ukraine with more on this. So first, Sam, let's talk about those attacks overnight on Kyiv. What more are we learning? Well, we understand, Erica, that uh, these uh, 10 missiles were shot down over the Ukrainian capital after a brief sort of nearly a day-long lull in which there'd been no attacks. That was the first day that there'd been no attacks, more or less, for about two weeks uh, in Ukrainian capital, which has been the focus of attention uh, of the Russian bombardment. But uh, tragically, three people killed uh, and a number, well, they were all killed and a large number injured when they found themselves locked out of a significant uh, bunker. Now, these are Soviet-era bunkers that are built around the city, very frequently close to or underneath the tower blocks and the residential blocks. Uh, but for reasons that uh, are now subject of an official investigation in Kiev, more than a year after the war, somebody had locked the door, trapping people outside. And then tragically, they were hit by 
debris descending, this all coming on a day in which the Russians continue to be under pressure too. They are saying in Belgorod province in the south of Russia on the northern border with Ukraine that a large number of uh, villages along the border are being evacuated. Uh, more than 300 children they're talking about evacuating, evacuating women. Uh, and that's because a number of towns they claim are being hit currently with the uh, Ukrainian artillery and mortars. And this is now a part of a new pattern of cross-border operations being conducted by Ukraine into Russia. They had been extremely rare in the past. Now they're becoming more routine. So you're seeing a lot more of this tit-for-tat effect on civilians on both sides of this conflict. So there's the tit-for-tat aspect of it, and then there's also what we could potentially see on the heels of these comments from Stoltenberg saying that NATO members agree Ukraine should be a member. What is the sense this morning in terms of what that could prompt in terms of attacks from Russia? I don't think the Russians have a great deal in their armory that would be uh, deployed in some kind of response to this sort of event. It's always a mistake to think that people, uh, when they're prosecuting a war, will react to anniversaries or retaliate in kind for certain acts. They are prosecuting an ongoing campaign here. Uh, they will use this uh, statement coming from Jens Stoltenberg domestically in the Kremlin to kind of prove their point to the Russian population that they needed to go to war to prevent NATO doing just this. And then it'll be up to the Russians to decide whether or not the Ukraine's closeness to NATO is a consequence of the Russian invasion uh, rather than anything else. Sam Kiley, live for us in Ukraine this morning. Thank you. Well, the NBA finals tip off tonight. It is the Heat versus the Nuggets, Butler versus Jokic. We have a preview of this game ahead. Yeah. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Tonight, the NBA Finals get underway in Denver at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. The Nuggets will face off against the Miami Heat in Game 1. The Heat are coming off a tight series against the Celtics, while the Nuggets took out the L.A. Lakers with a four-game sweep. If Denver wins the best of seven games, they will clinch the franchise's first ever title. CNN sports anchor Andy Scholes joins us now. Andy, 47 years in the trying, and now the yeah. Nuggets get a chance. Yeah, so you know their fans are excited. Good morning, Poppy and Erica. Yeah, and the Denver Nuggets, uh, they are well-rested for their first NBA Finals in team history. They haven't played in nine days since sweeping the Lakers, while the Heat, they haven't had much rest at all after beating the Celtics just on Monday. Miami also going to have to deal with that altitude there in Denver, where the Nuggets haven't lost a playoff game yet this year. They're a perfect 8-0 at home. The Nuggets... They're the one seed. Heat, the second eight seed ever to make it to the finals. Denver, four to one favorites to win it all, but their superstar, Nikola Jokic, well, he isn't taking Jimmy Butler and this Heat team lightly. This is going to be the, the hardest game of our life, and, and we know that, and we are prepared for that. We are preparing and prepare for that. So I think there is no favorites, and definitely I think we are not favorites in this uh, series. The guys that we have on this team, on this roster, um, can really play some high-level basketball. And we're going to stay confident because, like I said, we, we're in the, the grind every single day. Um, guys have been out of the lineup all year long. Guys step up, fill in, and, and do that job. So we're, we're never going to be surprised. 
Man, it is a great time to be a fan in the Miami area as they are in both the NBA Finals and Stanley Cup Final. Five metro areas have made it to both at the same time. Most recently, the New Jersey Nets and Devils back in 2003, but no one has ever been able to complete the double and win them both. Game one of Panthers and Golden Knights in Vegas, Saturday night. Puck drops at 8 Eastern on our sister channel TNT for that one. But tonight we get to see Nikola Jokic on the biggest stage for the first time ever. And guys, his rise to stardom is one of the biggest we've ever seen in NBA history. He was the 41st pick in the second round back in 2014. The ESPN broadcast went to a Taco Bell commercial during his selection. I think it's safe to say that we will never have a two-time MVP uh, in history of the NBA that's ever drafted again during a Taco Bell commercial. Oh my gosh. That's how wow. special Jokic is. <laughs> that, that I agree he's special, and you know why. But I think, also, wasn't Tom Brady like the 99th draft pick or something like that? Yeah, he was, a, yeah he was also a six-round pick. So, yeah, these things do happen, I guess. And they yes. make for great stories. Yeah, great stories. There we go. And you appreciate it. Thank you. All right. The 2024 candidates are hitting the trail. The stops they're making is the GOP field gets a lot more crowded <laughs> this morning. Also this, why the Pentagon is canceling what would have been an Air Force base's third annual drag show. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley's husband is set to deploy to Africa with the South Carolina Army National Guard. A person familiar with the matter tells CNN Michael Haley will likely remain overseas through the spring of 2024, which, of course, accounts for most of the presidential campaign season. The former South Carolina governor releasing a statement saying, quote, our family, like every military family, is ready to make personal sacrifices when our loved one answers the call. We could not be prouder of Michael and his military brothers and sisters. All right, just hours from now, two top Republican presidential hopefuls will hit the campaign trail in early voting states. Former President Donald Trump heading to Iowa, just missing his opponent, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis spent his first full day campaigning there yesterday. He's now headed to New Hampshire, and their trips come as two more GOP hopefuls get ready to jump in the race. CNN has learned former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will announce his bid on Tuesday, and former Vice President Mike Pence is set to do the same on Wednesday. Jessica Dean is live in Laconia, New Hampshire this morning. Jess, good morning to you. So what will we see from DeSantis there today? Good morning, Poppy. We expect to see him doing the traditional campaign swings all through New Hampshire. And he was here not too long ago, roughly about a month ago, where he headlined the dinner, the annual fundraising dinner for the state GOP party. And he broke some fundraising records. It was the biggest fundraiser they'd ever had. So we're going to see him doing multiple swings through New Hampshire. This follows uh, the similar playbook in Iowa yesterday as we really see his campaign taking shape and seeing him really maximize this first week of being out on the campaign trail in these early states, which will be so important uh, there in the beginning of the primary season. So we expect him to spend a lot of time in these states. And to boot, he'll be circling through South Carolina tomorrow and then back to Iowa for this weekend. We are also seeing him kind of road test some new uh, policy ideas as he's out on the road talking to voters. One would be to give back pay to members of the military who re-enlist due to the who left after and, and will re-enlist after leaving due to the COVID-19 vaccine policy. Another would be for universities to pick up the tab if students can't pay their loans back. So we're starting to see some of these policies also come out on the campaign trail. So, Poppy, we expect to see more of that today. His first stop will be happening right behind me. 
What are we going to learn from Mike Pence? He's been on this book swing for months now, you know, weighing a presidential run. Now he's going to make it official on Wednesday. Sounds like right before CNN has its town hall with him. Right. And so, as you mentioned, this GOP uh, field is getting ever more crowded. We're seeing more and more people jump in. He's going to get in on Wednesday. Of course, a lot of eyes have been on him as he's been on this book tour and really keeping himself in the spotlight as he contemplated whether he would get in or not. So uh, we expect to hear his reasoning behind getting in. And of course, he's kind of orchestrated all of this uh, with the announcement, with a video all in Iowa. And then our town hall will take place later that night. And of course, that comes the day after uh, former New Jersey governor and former GOP presidential hopeful Chris Christie gets in the race. So, Poppy, uh, a potential debate stage getting more and more full uh, as the days go by. Am I seeing images of 2016 in my mind and a whole lot of them on the debate stage? Jessica, thank you for Mm -hmm. the reporting. Yep. As we just mentioned, our very own Dana Bash will moderate that CNN Republican town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. It is Wednesday, 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. And then before that, this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, join Jake Tapper as he moderates a CNN town hall with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. This morning, the Pentagon is ordering a Nevada Air Force base to cancel a drag show set for today. This, of course, is the first day of Pride Month. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has spoken in support of Pride Month in the military. A Pentagon spokesman, however, says he has now drawn a line at allowing shows to be hosted at military bases because, we're quoting here, hosting these types of events in federally funded facilities is not a suitable use of DOD resources. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joining us now live from the Pentagon. So what's, I think, perhaps even more interesting, Natasha, is that Nellis Air Force Base has already hosted two drag events in the past. Third time is not the charm here. So why the about face from the Pentagon in 2023? Yeah, Erica, so this would have been the third drag show that Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada would have hosted in celebration of Pride Month. They have done this numerous times before. But this year, the Pentagon actually stepped in to cancel it. It had already been approved by Air Force leaders, and it was set to move forward. But when Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin found out about it, the fact that it was moving forward, he stepped in and he ordered that it be canceled. Now, uh, this obviously comes at a moment when these kinds of drag shows are becoming politically contentious with conservative. Uh, policymakers, Republicans on the Hill arguing that these military bases should not be hosting these events uh, because they should not be essentially using taxpayer money to fund them. And we should uh, play a clip from a House Armed Services Committee uh, hearing on March 29th when Representative Matt Gates, a Republican, questioned Austin and Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, Mark Milley very angrily about these drag shows uh, that have been taking place uh, on bases across the country. Here, take a listen. At Nellis Air Force Base, you had the drag you Nellis on June 17th. Who funded these things, Mr. Secretary? Listen, uh, drag shows and, uh, are not something that the Department of Defense uh, supports or funds. So. But wait, why, why are they happening on military bases? I just, I just showed you the evidence. Why are they happening? I will say again, this is not something that we support or fund. That's the first I'm hearing about that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't read those news stories. I don't know what you're talking about. I'd like to take a look at those because I don't agree with those. 
So as you mentioned, Erica, Austin has spoken out in support of Pride Month in the military before. He has said, quote, LGBTQ plus citizens have fought to defend our rights and freedoms from the founding of our nation to the Civil War and beyond. But obviously, given the politically contentious environment and his testimony that where he specifically said that the military does not support or fund these kinds of drag shows on bases uh, at this time, the military wanted to make sure that he uh, that his testimony was accurate. And so now what we're seeing um, is, according to an Air Force official, they say that consistent with his his congressional testimony, the Air Force will not host drag events anymore at these uh, installations or facilities. Erica. Natasha Bertrand, really appreciate the reporting this morning. Thank you. All right, ahead. This is so fascinating. Could a very popular weight loss drug also help people stop smoking, stop drinking, stop biting their nails? What researchers say about addictions and Ozempic. Plus, Samantha Jones is back, my friends. Kim Cattrall reprising her iconic Sex in the City role. I am so sick of these people with their children. I'm telling you, they're everywhere. Sitting next to me in first class, eating at the next table at John Shook. Look at that. This place is for double cappuccinos, not double strollers. Just like that, she's back. Honey, you put up a very good fight, but you have no idea who you're dealing with. Actress Kim Cattrall returning to her signature role of Samantha Jones, the sexually voracious publicist from Sex and the City. She, of course, played Samantha for six seasons and in two movies, but then famously declined to appear in the first season of the reboot series, and just like that. Media reports say her cameo for season two was secretly filmed in March in a parking garage here in New York, in Queens. Seems like exactly where you'd find Samantha. Not at all where I thought <laughs> I would find Samantha Jones, more like at Bergdorf Goodman, I but think so. you know, there's that. Okay, next to this story that we love, from flight attendant to best-selling author, TJ Newman is making waves as a female author entering the airplane action thriller space. Her first best-selling novel, Falling, garnered so much success, the book will soon be adapted into a motion picture from Universal Pictures. And now, just in time for summer, TJ is out with a new edge-of-your-seat thriller called Drowning, The Rescue of Flight 1421. And she joins us in studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning. We love your story. Uh, it's about hope. It's about perseverance. And we'll get to all that in a moment. But let's talk about the new book, because just reading snippets of it, it does have people on the edge of their seat. Here's part of it. Six minutes and 37 seconds after, flight, after the flight had taken off, Flight 1421 crashed. From the moment of impact until the plane came to rest was nine seconds, and somehow the plane was still in one piece. The passengers who'd survived the crash thought it was a miracle. They thought they were the lucky ones. They had no idea the worst was yet to come. Da-da-da. <laughs> Tell us about it. That's, I mean, that's, that's what the book is. It's a flight from Honolulu to San Francisco that crashes into the ocean six minutes after takeoff. The passengers evacuate until an explosion forces those who didn't get out in time to close the doors. But it's too late, and the plane floods and sinks, with 12 people trapped inside, including a father and his 11-year-old daughter. And now their only hope at survival lies with an elite rescue team on the surface led by her mother and his soon-to-be ex-wife. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> Told you. Da -da -da. I know, I know. The da-da-da is so perfect. As, as Poppy said, we're super excited about the book, but I think what we both 
really love is your story. The fact that you didn't give up on this dream. You were rejected famously 41 times, your first, your first book. And yet, I love in the latest review from the Washington Post for this book, they write, the expertise displayed in her first book was no fluke. You had that fear as a first time author that maybe this was a fluke. It was not. How does it feel to see that in print? It's, it's so validating. I worked so hard on this book. I worked so hard on the first book. I worked so hard on this book because I just, I wanted to prove to myself and to say thank you to everyone who read my first book and loved my first book and told me that they loved it. And to have the privilege of their time and attention was not something I take lightly or for granted. And I wanted to give them the best story that I possibly could. And to be here sitting with you on CNN talking about it, it's, it's surreal. You know, when I, when I came from the airport last night, the cab drove past, you know, the old crew hotel where I stayed as a flight attendant. And then it drove past the old apartment in Queens that I lived in when I was a struggling actor in New York and just getting rejected. <laughs> and I just kept thinking, I'm going to be on CNN in the morning talking about my book that I wrote. And it was driving past all those old memories. It was, it's all just surreal. Well, our viewers are looking at these pictures of you as a flight attendant over the years. I think we might have some photos of you in your actress days, back when you were trying to make it as an actress. And you wrote about this recently. You said, as a 20-something, I spent years pursuing my Broadway dreams in New York, which ended me with embarrassingly thin resume buying a one-way ticket home to Arizona. And you, you slept on your twin beds, your twin beds as a child. And for years, you wrote figuring out my life on every to-do list you had. Talk to people who have that hope, but who haven't achieved it yet. I hope if there's one thing from my story that people can take away, it's that it can happen. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. I didn't know anybody in publishing. I didn't know how to get a book published. I was just willing to do the work and then just kept researching and kept going until I got everything that I wanted. And it's been really, really nice to have sort of that response from people who have heard my story and who have seen that I didn't know anybody, I didn't have an in, and my whole background was in rejection. I, I, I submitted this, my first book, to 41 different agents, and all 41 rejected me, and my 42nd was my one and only yes, but it only takes one yes, right? And so I hope if there's anything that people take from this, it's keep going. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. It's great. You also wrote some really powerful words from Maria Shriver's Sunday paper. I would encourage people to read about paying it forward and being the example and really owning your dream. It is such a treat to have you here this morning. We are so excited for your success and for this book. Can't wait for number three. No pressure. Can't wait, no pressure. <laughs> number three, uh, congratulations to you. People write things down on cocktail napkins because they become a reality, right? That's part of your story on the flight, writing this down. Be sure to check out Drowning. The Rescue of Flight 1421, available now. Just ahead, more on this first on CNN reporting. Federal prosecutors have obtained audio recording of former President Trump acknowledging he held on to classified documents. The legal and political implications are just ahead. Also, NASA holding its first ever public hearing on UFOs. We're going to talk to the chair of the NASA team studying them. That's next.
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Are we alone? On Wednesday, NASA held its first ever public hearing surrounding that age-old question. This summer, a panel of 16 scientists will publish their first report on unidentified anomalous phenomena, also known as UAPs, or to us common folk, UFOs. <laughs> Pentagon officials report there have been more than 800 sightings of unidentified objects in the past 27 years, but only 2 to 5% of those are really, quote, Anomalous. Joining us is the chair of NASA's UAP independent study team, astrophysicist David Spurgle. It's great to have you here with us. Every time that word comes out of my mouth, I feel like I'm going to mangle it. Which one? Unidentified. That one I can do. (laughs) This was a seventh month study. Mm -hmm. What was the big takeaway here? I think the big takeaway is we need better data. So our job is really not to understand the nature of the events in our report, but to give NASA a roadmap of how it can contribute to our understanding. Now, the military is actually our lead agency in studying these events, because some of the events, like we saw that Chinese balloon Mm -hmm. a couple months ago, are military and intelligence community issues. But NASA's different. NASA is a citizen agency, and NASA can bring in the scientific method. It could bring in really citizen scientists as well as professional scientists to address this. And what we found is most events are explainable. They're mm-hmm. bal- balloons, they're commercial jets, drones, weather phenomenon. But there are some events where we don't have good enough data to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Aha. But how do you get it? Because part of why you do this, you've said, is to remove the stigma that commercial mm-hmm. and military pilots mm-hmm. often feel like they won't be taken seriously if they report something they don't know what it is. Um, h- how do you get more data from whom? I think what we want, we'll end up recommending, and we're still not at our final stage, but for NASA to make use of things like the three to four billion cell phones we have and develop apps that can record information from your phone. Your phone not only takes good images, of course, gives you your location, it measures sound, it measures gravitational field, it measures the local magnetic field. So you can imagine encrypting all that data and uploading that to websites. If people voluntarily upload it, right? Because the first thing sure. I think of is major privacy <laughs> concerns. Only People only are going to do this if they see something they don't understand. And they want to share. And they want to share. Do you okay. think it would be my guess, too, that there is a lot of interest in people participating in that? I think there is. I mean, this question of are we alone yeah. is really a fundamental question. Um, I think just people want to understand what's out there. I think that's one of the sources of curiosity, right? You see something you don't understand. You want to figure out what it is. And I think this is an opportunity to engage the public in what we do as scientists. Now, one of the things we do as scientists is we don't always jump to the most exciting conclusion. When we see things we don't understand, we try to get good data. If you can see something, if you take a picture and I take a picture, Just by combining those two images, we can figure out the distance to the object. Mm. If we take multiple pictures, we can infer its velocity. If five or six people take pictures, you can verify the quality of the data. Um, One of the problems in some of the data that we see is um, optical effects inside the camera. If I point my camera in one direction and the sun's over there, I think we've all taken pictures where the sun does really weird things. 
and you want to have multiple images and verifiable data if you're going to draw interesting sure. conclusions. And I'm sure that would help prevent against AI being used mm -hmm. to create things that aren't really there, which has got to make your job a lot more complicated. Somewhat more, though I think one can do things to encrypt and huh. uh, the data on a phone. You would know a lot more about that than I would. <laughs> Thank you, David. This is really interesting. We'll continue to track it. Terrific. Appreciate it. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Trump seems to indicate on this tape that he has taken it's a classified document and that he is limited to declassify something, which would undercut the argument that he's been making all along. They become automatically declassified when I took them. To be at a country club and be talking about plans for a possible military invasion. Recordings are like gold to prosecutors. The House voted to pass the debt limit bill. A huge relief for President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the global financial system. Democrats kept our promise. We all made history. This is the biggest cut and savings this Congress has ever voted for. Russia's war is increasingly spilling into its own territory. Even the Kremlin calling the situation in Belgrad alarming. What we're seeing as a completely new phase, they're launching it and they're launching it in Russia. We have been very clear with the Ukrainians that we do not support attacks inside Russia. The 2024 GOP presidential race is about to get more crowded. Mike Pence will throw his hat into the ring. Chris Christie feels that he is the only candidate that is willing to take on Trump directly head to head. Are they going to get in the race and actually say something about him to him? We had to carry him on our backs with difficulty. A Nepali Sherpa guide saved a climber's life, hauling him down Mount Everest for six hours in a death zone rescue. It was important for us to rescue him. We have saved his life by quitting the summit. Good morning, everyone. See, miracles do happen on Mount Everest. It's good. I love that story. <laughs> we'll get much more of that ahead. Happy to be joined by Erica Hill. Good morning. Nice to be with you this morning. Nice to have you. We start here. This morning was first on CNN reporting. Sources tell CNN federal prosecutors have obtained a recording of former President Donald Trump acknowledging he held on to a classified document about a potential attack on Iran after he left the White House. The recording is from a meeting Trump had with two biographers of his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. This happened at his Bedminster Golf Club in July of 2021. CNN has not been able to listen to the recording, but multiple sources who have describe its contents to us. And they say in it, Trump is discussing a document about a potential plan to attack Iran. Papers can be heard ruffling on the recording. It's unclear if Trump actually showed anyone in the room the document in question. The special counsel, Jack Smith, who is leading the Justice Department investigation into Trump, has focused on the meeting as part of the criminal probe into Trump's handling of national security secrets. And prosecutors have questioned multiple witnesses before the grand jury about this recording and document. According to sources familiar with the investigation, the recording indicates Trump understood that he retained classified material after leaving the White House, despite his public claims otherwise. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. 
Now, Trump was reportedly outraged by a report in The New Yorker that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, was concerned Trump might set in motion a full-scale conflict that was not justified with Iran after he lost that 2020 presidential election. The episode has generated enough interest for investigators to question Milley, who is, of course, one of the highest-ranking Trump-era national security officials. Questioned about the incident, Milley's spokesperson declined to comment to CNN. Trump's attorney deflected when asked about this new information. The president, under the Presidential Records Act, has unfettered authority to do what he wants with documents that he's taken from the White House while president. I am not going to sit here and dignify leaks that are incomplete, that are unfair, and that are dishonest. This is a leak campaign. Let's bring in CNN senior legal affairs correspondent, one of the reporters who broke this story, Paula Reed. Also joining us this morning, former House Intelligence Chairman Mike Rogers, senior correspondent for Time, Charlotte Alter, and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Good morning to you all, Paula. First, walk us through your reporting. Well, first, I want to respond uh, to the suggestion that this was the result of a leak. It was not. I mean, this was dogged reporting done by our colleague, Caitlin Polans, uh, with Caitlin Collins, myself, and our colleagues, Sarah Murray and Kristen Holmes. It's taken us quite some time to gather this information. And what we've learned is that this was a meeting at Trump's Bedminster Golf Club in 2021. And in attendance, among the people in attendance, a few Trump aides, and two people working on an autobiography of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Now, that is significant because even though Meadows wasn't there at this time, Trump was in the habit of recording conversations with journalists, writers, anyone working on a book. So he knew that he was being taped. And while we have not heard this recording, multiple sources tell us that on this recording, not only does the former president reveal that he is still in possession of at least one classified document, a Pentagon memo describing a possible attack on Iran, but he also suggests that he would like to share this but he acknowledges that there are limits on his power to declassify once he's out of the White House. And that, as you noted, that undercuts everything. He and his attorneys have argued publicly about why he was not intentionally keeping some of the nation's most sensitive secrets. There is so much in there, um, not just the fact that it was being recorded and that it sounds like the shuffling papers are there, but the fact that Nick Ackerman, based on the reporting, he knew that he couldn't share this information and was somehow acknowledging that. That could be particularly damning, one would think. Totally. I mean, once you have a defendant on tape like this, uh, it is absolutely significant in the sense that this is a direct admission. It, t it makes the defendant become the chief witness in his own trial. Now, keep in mind, this is just one aspect of the evidence that the special counsel is gathered in this area. But it's certainly significant, and by itself, it's a crime. It is a crime to actually reveal classified information, which is what he was doing. It also raises the question of what was this document doing in Bedminster when he had moved all these documents to Mar-a-Lago? Were there other documents at Bedminster? Was this document one of the documents that was seized in the, in the search in August of last year? And if not, does that mean that there are other documents at Bedminster that we still haven't yet retrieved or the Department of Justice hasn't retrieved? So this is a pretty significant document. And there's no doubt that lots of people are going to be going into the grand jury to explain how this got to Bedminster and what happened and what were the circumstances surrounding Trump's reading of that document. Chairman Rogers, to you, I mean, you were 
the chair of the House Intelligence Committee and knowing that the people in that room in Bedminster with the former president after he left the White House had no security clearance whatsoever. And the fact that this was about a potential strike on Iran, four pages of that. And I should just note that Trump had said that it was written by Milley. Our reporting is that it was not written by the Joint Chiefs Chairman. What, what pause does that give you? Oh, very significant. It's the cavalier nature of which he, A, had the document, which is uh, also a crime if he did, in fact. And secondly, was causing the information in that document to be disclosed to uh, people who are not authorized to hear it. And the very nature and, uh, and sensitivity of the topic that was in that particular document, as described, uh, is very, very concerning. It has ramifications with our adversaries. Uh, and certainly even our friends who would, you know, partake in the planning of, of uh, something like that, even if there was no intent to follow through. So it showed his intent. And, you know, the one thing about having, a, as an old FBI guy can tell you, the one thing about having a, a, a tape with your voice on it, the only better piece of evidence that is a guilty plea at the end of the day. It is really significant. Charlotte, to that point on the tape, what's interesting about that, too, is we're not just talking about witness testimony which it's easier for somebody to come out and say, sure, that guy says, it, you know, right. swore under oath, but I'm telling you I was there and that is not how it happened. A tape does change things, a recording. Well, I think it depends on what you mean by changes things. I mean, certainly legally, it creates a lot of trouble for him. But with his voters, I'm not so sure that it's clear that it changes things for them. There have been other cases of Trump being caught on tape saying things that w should would potentially be considered to be disqualifying in an American presidential election. I mean, you remember there were tapes that were released during the 2016 election of him talking about grabbing women that didn't seem to bother his core base of supporters that much. So I think one of the things to remember here is that there is the, there is the legal implications for mm -hmm. Trump, which are actually significantly different than the political implications for him, because the people that made Trump president have had seven years to get used to ignoring stories like this. And I think it remains to be seen whether this is going to break through to them. Politically, but legally, Paula, not only are you a dogged reporter, you're a lawyer. Does this broaden the risk here for Trump beyond obstruction? Yeah, absolutely, Poppy. That's such a great question because I think so many times even on this show, we've talked about the legal jeopardy. And I have noted that a lot of the focus has been on obstruction, but this Justice Department has been reluctant to bring charges just of obstruction. They prefer to have an underlying crime charged as well, as sort of a belt and suspenders to have the strongest case possible. And I have cautioned that while uh, there does appear to be some evidence uh, that prosecutors are weighing about obstruction, it wasn't clear if they had enough to charge any of the underlying other crimes crimes they were looking at. This changes that. Look, that'll be up to the special counsel prosecutors to decide whether they want to charge the former president or anyone else. But this reporting, what we've disclosed here, absolutely changes our understanding of the legal jeopardy facing the former president. I'll also note the other big thing it reveals is we've all been focused uh, down in Florida on the classified documents that were found down there. But clearly, based on this new reporting, there's also at least one classified document that was in Bedminster. Mm -hmm. We do know from our reporting, the former president's lawyers searched there late last year and said they did not find anything. 
you know, picking up where where Paula left off there, Nick, if we look at this, Bradley Moss in our last hour said to him, this is clearly a violation of the Espionage Act. You were saying that there is more legal jeopardy now in your view this morning. Would you agree with that assessment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not only the possession of classified information, which he had, but it's also the dissemination of classified information. So you've got him violating two criminal statutes. Uh, and the jeopardy is heightened by the fact that it's his own voice on tape admitting to what he's doing. I mean, this is like what's happened now in Georgia with the three or four tapes they've got on Trump there, the tape they've got on him in the DA's case in New York. I mean, this is quite amazing that you've got three prosecutions going forward soon that have Trump actually as a star witness in each of those cases. You know, Chairman Rogers, I think it's interesting that this CNN reporting follows the really exceptional reporting by The Washington Post, you know, a week and a half ago or so, you know, laying out that the boxes with classified documents were moved uh, at the direction of someone at Mar-a-Lago on June 2nd, the day before your former FBI guy, the day before the FBI came down there uh, to search. And it was known that they were coming. This wasn't the surprise August, you know, search. This was they knew they were coming on the 3rd of June. The boxes were moved on the 2nd. When you tie that reporting to this reporting, what does it leave you with? Clearly, uh, his intent uh, was to disclose information and use it for his own personal gain, which I find disturbing. You know, classified information doesn't belong to any person. It belongs to the country writ large. Uh, and something as sensitive as this shows in his mind and to me uh, that he holds these things as a trophy. Uh, and from the from the description of the tape, you know, he holds it as this is why I'm special. I have this information. It makes me special uh, and I'm willing to share it with you. I don't know if I can show it to you. And so you don't know if he had follow up conversations on it. So the pattern of activity here clearly shows he had the intent to take these things not for any good purpose, but for a purpose other than that. And again, I think he thinks of these things as a trophy. I think he thinks that he doesn't have to follow the rules on classification. And that's dangerous because of the, uh, the seriousness of what was in this document, clearly. Uh, and if you have the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which, uh, you know, given all of the things going on in the world, has to go down to the grand jury to testify yeah. uh, about this particular document at this particular time, it shows you, A, the severity of it, uh, and why it's dangerous to have people who don't respect or understand the importance of classified information and why it needs to be classified. Charlotte, to your point, there are the legal and the political, right? This morning, we are really focused on the legal for obvious reasons. And yet, when we look at the political implications, when we look at how the former president uh, will be responding here and whether or not it sticks, there's also the history of the comments that have been made. I know in the past there have been comments that the president made that they were then contradictory. Does this change anything based on the evolution that we've seen from him in terms of what he believes he can do with classified documents? Has any of that broken through? I mean, I, I really think that there's sort of two universes of people here who, who are voting. There's, there's the people who are paying attention to this story and who understand the legal implications of it and the nuances of it and understand why why taking classified documents is not okay. And then there are voters who are just not going to believe anything that Trump is accused of. And that is a, that is, it's very, very difficult to penetrate that. Um, they've had seven years, really, since 2016 to develop that worldview. Um, that's nearly impossible to pierce. I mean, uh, and so 
I think a lot depends on what happens with the rest of the Republican field, because the more people who run against Trump, the stronger Trump's campaign is, because it splits the vote of the people who are paying attention and perhaps alarmed by this story. Charlotte, thank you. Paula, great reporting. Chairman Rogers, Nick, appreciate all the analysis. See where this goes. Well, the U.S. Uh, is getting one step closer to averting a catastrophic default. This after House lawmakers did pass that debt ceiling deal. So what can you expect as the bill heads to the Senate? That's next. Also, Amazon settling two federal lawsuits for violating the privacy of Alexa and Ring users. Major price tag for the new tech for the tech giant ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the debt ceiling deal heading to the Senate after House lawmakers overwhelmingly passed the bill on Wednesday. And with this, Jay Suspera, of course, before a potentially catastrophic default. The high-stakes negotiations over the bill have been a critical test for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who took a victory lap after that deal passed the House. I wanted to do something no other Congress has done, that we would literally turn the ship that for the first time in quite some time, we'd spend less than we spent the year before. Tonight, we all made history because this is the biggest cut and savings this Congress has ever voted for. And it's not that we're just voting for it. This is going to be law. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill this morning. I feel like you've moved in there, Lauren. Uh, so we are halfway <laughs> there. The big question this morning, of course, will this pass in the Senate? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely momentum coming out of the House of Representatives. That vote was overwhelming last night with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy getting more than just a majority of his Republican majority. That was really important to him and his leadership team as they obviously were dealing with a lot of concerns and consternation in their right flank. Now this heads over to the U.S. Senate. The expectation is that it is going to pass eventually. It's just a question of how quickly the Senate can move. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell made it clear yesterday he would hope they could get a time agreement to begin this process as soon as today, hoping that maybe they could even get out of here before the weekend. Senators always are motivated by those jet fumes, usually on Thursday afternoons, but they do need to get some kind of time agreement. And already you're hearing from a number of Republicans and Democrats who want to have votes on amendments. Here's the key issue, though. None of those amendments really can pass because otherwise they'd have to kick it back over to the House of Representatives. That would push you past the Monday, June 5th deadline where Janet Yellen says the country could default. So this is going to be something that moves hopefully quickly out of the Senate. That is the expectation of leadership, but they do have to secure that time agreement first. We're going to be watching for that and any signs of white smoke coming out of the Senate later today. Yes, Erica. so watching for those indeed. Lauren, appreciate it. Thank you. Joining us now is Harvard economist Jason Furman. He was a top economic advisor to President Obama, was at the negotiating table in 2011 in this debt ceiling fight then when we came within 72 hours of default. Jason, good morning and thanks for joining us. Morning. Uh, first of all, Kevin McCarthy's claim that this is historic and it's the biggest cut in savings Congress has ever done and it's law essentially saying you can't change it. Does that all add up? Uh, not really, but look, I'm glad he thinks it. I'm glad he's able to say it. I was glad he got two thirds of his caucus. But no, that's not close to true. 
You have some interesting analysis that struck me, and it's different than what a lot of other economists are focusing on, because you really point to, even if they pass the Senate, even if this gets done by Monday and signed, the economic turbulence it's already caused. Explain. Yeah, look, this outcome is fine. The process was terrible. Um, you saw you know, jitters in markets. You saw pretty much historically unprecedented rise in the cost of insuring against a default on the U.S. debt. You had lots of financial institutions wasting all sorts of time figuring out contingency plans. So this is really sort of no way to run a railroad. I think we need to not take the lesson away from this that the system worked, but take the lesson away from this. We need to really permanently fix this, ideally get rid of the debt limit or make it effectively automatic. Well, you say get rid of the debt limit, and there's other folks that agree with you. We had the head of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari, on last week, who said we have to at least look at that. President Biden keeps saying no. He's called it irresponsible to do that before. He doubled down this week, saying it's not a good idea. Um, we've also seen Mick Mulvaney, who served as a director of OMB under Trump, uh, point to the 2011 debt ceiling deal and, and said, you know, I think what the debt ceiling does is force us to talk about why we need to borrow more money. Why are they wrong in your view? So first of all, no other country has this. Second of all, there's other forcing mechanisms. They would have needed to agree to almost everything they had in this deal by September 30th as part of the regular annual appropriations process for the budget. Um, and finally, people don't want to get rid of the debt limit entirely. There's bipartisan legislation that would basically require either Congress or the president to put a plan forward to cut the debt in exchange for raising the debt limit. The plan wouldn't need to pass. As long as they put that plan forward, the debt limit would automatically go up. So maybe that could be hmm. a compromise to get us out of this, uh, this this mess that I think we continue to be in. Fair. We do continue to be in it, and compromise would be a good thing. I, I have been struck over the last 24 hours by Republicans, including two of them on this program yesterday in the House, um, saying the CBO got it wrong, saying, show us your work. The math is fuzzy here, because we know the Congressional Budget Office came out and said, yes, this cuts about $1.5 but because you added more veterans and people who are homeless to SNAP, food assistance, cash benefits, you're actually possibly going to add 2.1 uh, in, in spending, so more than the 1.5 cut. What do you say to those folks who are saying the CBO got it wrong? Look, the truth is this is a hard thing to estimate. There's going to be a big group that's subject to work requirements that didn't used to be. And there's a big group, as you said, veterans, homeless, former foster children that won't be subject to them. CBO thinks that second group is bigger than the first group. I think that's a reasonable guess, but there is an error margin around that. And so to a first approximation, this is roughly a wash um, for the SNAP program, um, nutritional assistance, but probably it's a bit more likely that it did increase it. And yeah, I think whenever you're arguing CBO is wrong, um, you're in, you're, you know, that's not the best argument to be well, let's, making. Let's listen to some of those arguments that were made just yesterday by Republicans. I respectfully disagree with the analysis by the CBO on this. They're not looking at things uh, that'll happen tomorrow, that'll happen the next day. They're not looking at the potential growth in the economy. That came out last night. Uh, the math is wrong. Uh, and you say the math look, is flat out we wrong. We need to see their homework on this. Can you just, I mean, the CBO is the best we've got, right, at estimating these things. It was set up by Congress. It's nonpartisan. 
Just wonder if you could remind people, they talk to all sorts of economists, think tanks, et cetera, right? This isn't just like a guessing, partisan guessing game, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, CBO has an enormous amount of data that it's relying on. It is doing a lot of math. I don't think either of the people you just showed in interviews there had done any math um, at all on this question. They just had an answer they were hoping was true, but um, hope isn't a great strategy. That's my thing. So, by the way, stepping back, let's understand why we're in this position. The White House had negotiators that were steeped in the details of this program and really cared about the outcome. And when you have both of those, you do better in a negotiation. I don't think this surprised the White House. I think they knew exactly what they were doing when they struck this deal. And you know, I think to the degree they got the better of some parts of it, it shows their preparation and their caring really paid off. Just quickly, Jason, though, do you think that the, with hindsight, which is always helpful, do you think the White House should have sat down with Kevin McCarthy a lot sooner on this? Look, I think it all worked out fine. Um, I think it was a little hard to explain why they weren't sitting down with him yeah. at an earlier stage. I think there's arguments on both sides. I probably would have been in favor of them sitting down, but, you know, I might have been wrong. Right, but you say it all worked out fine, but you point to the market turbulence it caused because we came to the brink again. Yeah. So there's that. Right. The question is, could the Republicans especially or any side really have agreed to something with three weeks to go when all their members would say, oh, no, take another week and get a better deal. We're not voting for this yet. So something, I don't know. Something about getting to the 11th hour is something Washington's particularly good at, I suppose. Jason Furman, thank you very much. Good seeing you. Seeing you, Erica. Power of the 11th hour in Washington. It is real. Uh, poison in every puff. The New Way Canada is urging people to put out their cigarettes. Plus, studies show drugs like Ozempic can not only help with weight loss, new research shows they may help curb addictions. A CNN Medical Report is next. Poison in every puff. Labels like that will soon be printed on every single cigarette in Canada. It's the first country in the world to mandate health warnings directly on individual cigarettes. You see them on the boxes now here, but these are individual cigarettes. In addition to the new graphic warnings on the outside of packages and on displays, it's part of new tobacco regulations designed to remind people about the dangers of smoking. Messages like cigarettes cause impotence will be required in English and French in Canada by the end of April 2025. Researchers are studying whether Ozempic and other drugs like it could help curb addictions. So the use of Ozempic has soared over the last year. It's a prescription medication, which of course was aimed initially at treating type two diabetes, but many people say they take it instead to lose weight. And now doctors report they're finding some other unintended side effects of the positive variety. Yeah. CNN's Meg Jarrell is here. So some patients now telling their doctors that they no longer want to smoke. They don't feel like drinking anymore. Was this a surprise? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating to hear from patients and doctors the experience of taking these medicines. You know, the same way they talk about sort of just losing interest in food. Some people describe losing interest in alcohol or vaping. So scientists are actually researching whether this is a true effect, running clinical trials. We dug into what might be going on. Check it out. These days, Sherry Ferguson has swapped her vape pen for an Ozempic pen. I thought... I'm not enjoying vaping, so I may as well just put this into the battery bin at work and I'll see how long I can go without it. And that was 54 days ago. 
Ferguson started using Ozempic 11 weeks ago to combat weight gained during the pandemic that she says was increasing her risk of diabetes. A smoker for much of her life, Ferguson switched to vaping last July. But after starting Ozempic, she says something changed. It's like someone's just come along and switched a light on and you can see the room for what it is. And all of these vapes and cigarettes that you've had over the years, it just, they don't look attractive anymore. It's, it's very, very strange, very strange. Ferguson is one of many patients taking drugs like Ozempic for weight loss who say they've also lost interest in some addictive behaviors. Doctors told CNN that patients most commonly report an effect on alcohol use. It may be because these drugs in a class known as GLP-1s have an effect not just in the gut, but also in the brain. It's something being studied at the National Institutes of Health, where researchers just published a paper showing semaglutide, the active ingredient in Ozempic, reduced what they called binge-like alcohol drinking in rodents. We believe that at least one of the mechanisms how these drugs reduce alcohol drinking is by reducing the rewarding effects of alcohol, such as those related to a neurotransmitter in our brain, which is dopamine. So these medications are likely to make alcohol less rewarding. And it's not just alcohol and nicotine. Patients have even told The Atlantic it had effects on behaviors like nail biting and online shopping. There is a lot of overlap on the neurobiological mechanism that regulate addictive behaviors in general. So it's possible that medications like semaglutide, by acting on this specific mechanism in the brain, they may help people with a variety of addictive behaviors. Clinical trials in humans are needed to prove that. One set is underway at the University of North Carolina looking at semaglutide's effect on alcohol and tobacco use. Sherry Ferguson says Ozempic has helped her lose 38 pounds. Even better, she says, is how it's made her feel. The weight that it takes off your mind is far greater than any pounds that can come off, off your body. Now, we reached out to Novo Nordisk, which is the maker of Ozempic and Wagovi, its sister drug, and also Eli Lilly, which makes a similar medicine. These companies are not currently testing these drugs in any sort of addiction indications. This traditionally really hasn't been a good market for the pharmaceutical industry, even though researchers tell us there is a huge need for better medicine. What do you mean a good market? A money-making yeah. market? A money-making market. The drugs that have been launched in alcohol use disorder, for yeah. example, have not been successful. I think this could, could, could save so many lives, alcoholics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Smokers. I mean, there's 30 million people in the country who have alcohol use disorder, according to the NIH, and only about 5% get treatment with medication right wow. now. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, I guess it's about the money sometimes. <laughs> Maybe that'll change. Make such a great report. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it. You. Another story we're watching this morning, Amazon paying out millions of dollars over allegations that it stored Alexa voice recordings and that some employees were given unrestricted access to ring camera footage. What you should know about your smart devices ahead. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon denying under oath that he ever met or talked to Jeffrey Epstein or that he discussed any of his bank accounts. That is according to a transcript that was released yesterday from Dimon's deposition on Friday. In it, 
It's in connection to a lawsuit brought against the bank by victims of Epstein and the U.S. Virgin Islands. They are alleging that the company knew about the sex trafficking allegations against Epstein, but still continued to do business with him. I asked Diamond about this in an interview we did in the beginning of April. This was weeks before his deposition. And according to the transcript of the deposition, lawyers for the plaintiffs played portions of that interview when they questioned Diamond. Here it is. I want to ask you about something that is in the news, that J.P. Morgan is in the news, about uh, a former client of yours, and that is Jeffrey Epstein. J.P. Morgan's being sued now by the U.S. Virgin Islands. They're alleging that your bank helped facilitate payments to Epstein's victims and benefited from human trafficking while ignoring warnings. Do those allegations have merit? So I cannot talk about current litigation except to say that whenever these things come up, we have some of the best lawyers in the world, compliance, out of the DOJ, out of SEC enforcement divisions, who review all of these things and make decisions at the time based on what they know, as best as they know. You're going to be deposed, we've learned now, in this case in the spring. In retrospect, Jamie, do you think J.P. Morgan should have acted more quickly after Epstein pleaded guilty to one of these charges in 2008, because he was your client for five more years? Hindsight is a fabulous gift. Well, the lawyers then asked Diamond what information he did have about Epstein and J.P. Morgan's handling of his accounts, to which Diamond replied, I knew very little about any of this until this case was opened. And then, of course, I've learned quite a bit since then. According to the lawsuits, Epstein was a J.P. Morgan client from 1998 until 2013. Epstein was indicted on a prostitution charge in 2006, pleaded guilty in 2008, but spent very little time in jail. And then in 2019, the Epstein scandal uh, broke. He was arrested on federal sex trafficking charges. He died by suicide while detained. Diamond says he only heard of Epstein after that 2019 news broke. Joining us is Khadija Safdar. She's the Wall Street Journal reporter who's been covering this story from the very beginning. Really important reporting, including yesterday, you reported that uh, former J.P. Morgan Chase executive, Jess Daly, had said that he did actually communicate with Diamond, talked to him about the bank's business with Epstein, that they had had these conversations, which appears to be a direct, uh, indirect conflict with what we heard from Jamie Diamond in that deposition. Could you yes, if you I did report that the bank. Ha- oh, yes, I can hear you. The bank said the statements were false. And keep in mind that the bank has sued Staley and sought to pin the relationship on him. But Staley did say in legal documents that he Diamond communicated with him from 2006 to 2012 and also about his arrest in 2006 and then the guilty plea in 2008. What did you, this is a 415-page deposition, um, some of it redacted, but a lot of it not redacted here, and it brings up other high-ranking executives at J.P. Morgan. What was your big takeaway from reading this? I think what I took away was that Jamie Dimon was essentially saying is that it was other executives' responsibility to review and terminate this relationship. He particularly calls out Stephen Cutler, who was the bank's general counsel at the time, and he said that if he had wanted to override others and terminate the relationship, that he could have done that. He did say that he respects Cutler and that he thought he was trying to do the right thing. He also calls out other executives as well for being able to have that ability to terminate the relationship. To your point about color, because that's what was striking to me about your reporting in the paper this morning, um, because lawyers point in this deposition asked Jamie Dimon about an email from 2011, which Cutler, who is a top 
lawyer at the bank whose office used to be right next to Jamie Dimon's. 2011, while he's working at the bank, this lawyer writes to others at the bank about Epstein, quote, this is not an honorable person in any way. He should not be a client, showing knowledge of issues there. But, and, and, and the arrest that was made in 2008, but they kept him as a client until 2013. Is the big question now, did Jamie Dimon know any of that? And he's saying under oath he did not. Yeah, he contends that he did not. Um, but w- that is bewildering that he wrote that email essentially saying that this person shouldn't be a client in 2011. He was asked about it. Um, I mean, Jamie Dimon was asked about it, and he did say at that time that Cutler could have overrode others at that time and decided ultimately to terminate the relationship. And I think he's just essentially putting the responsibility on onus on him. Yeah, it's interesting because those records in the deposition showing that the legal team repeatedly were evaluating the legal status, but yet approved these accounts year after year. Khadija, thank you. Um, All of this happening as well as there's some more Jamie Dimon news. There is. I I would just note, so people know the timeline here, that in 2008, Jeffrey Epstein pleaded guilty Mm -hmm. to soliciting and procuring of a minor for prostitution. That's really key here. Served some prison time and then was kept on as a client until 2013, which, by the way, Dimon is now saying this should never have happened. Mm Right. So there's a lot more to follow here. But there is other news. Right. As this is happening, the news of Jamie Dimon's deposition broke just as some major Wall Street players began publicly encouraging him to run for president of the United States. Our chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Christy Romans, is here with all of that. Really interesting. Bill Ackman. It really is. So he is uh, also a legendary investor, and he's out there saying um, that he thinks that Jamie Dimon should run for president. This is what he said yesterday in a long tweet storm. He said, we we need an exemplary business, financial, and global leader to manage through what is likely to be a critically important decade for our country in determining our destiny. Jamie Dimon is that leader. There is only one better job for Jamie than CEO of J.P. Morgan, and that's POTUS. He can beat Biden in the primary, and he can beat Donald Trump in the general election. He needs to start now, build name recognition, uh, and raise <laughs> and raise millions of dollars. It's sort of a remarkable endorsement of someone who's been known recently as the president of Wall Street, because when there's a problem, he comes in. Um, when there's a question, presidents and prime ministers have Jamie Dimon on, on speed dial. You know, he is really the only banker of that kind of stature that I can think of in, in modern history. And he's been asked many times. He was asked by Bloomberg, would you ever, in, a, in an interview from China this week, would you ever um, consider running for public office or for accepting a cabinet position? And this is what he said. I love my country, and maybe one day I'll serve my country in one capacity or another. But he loves his current job, by the way, and uh, shareholders love him in his current job. He's been, we all ask him this question a lot because um, people wonder if there is a political future in Washington for Jamie Dimon. So that is the sort of the second part of the story, I think, this week that is Jamie Dimon a household name here. I think it's interesting because he's not really an ideologue. He's talked about sort of his, his brain being more Republican, yeah. his heart being more Democratic. of a Democrat. He says he's barely a Democrat. Yeah, uh, and, so if and he the, ran what he would run as. And that his brain is more Republican. And he has said before... He, he wanted, and one of the reasons why Bill Ackman and others really endorse him um, for higher offices is because he gets how this country is run. 
And he knows that we have big, hard problems that need to be solved, like a $32 trillion uh, national debt. And he has always said, he's told me several times, um, you fix the roof when the sun is shining. So when it's good times, that's when you make the hard decisions. And that's something that doesn't happen in Washington. He's also a real student of history, as you know, having interviewed him so many times. And he applies that, you know, as he thinks about, he's in China right now, for example. But would America elect a banker for higher office? That's a good question. Christine, thank you very much. Uh, This just in to CNN. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the ongoing lack of communication with China could lead to an incident that could spiral out of control. That statement coming uh, while he's in Japan. You've heard me talk a number of times about the importance of countries uh, with large, with uh, significant capabilities uh, being able to talk to each other so you can you can manage crises and and prevent uh, uh, things from spiraling out of control unnecessarily. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is joining us now live from the Pentagon. So the Pentagon says that China, uh, remember, refused. We talked about this this week, refused a proposal to meet with Austin at the Shangri-La Dialogue Security Conference. These latest comments from Austin are pretty remarkable, especially in light of that. Yeah, and they come just days after, of course, a Chinese fighter jet intercepted a U.S. reconnaissance plane over the South China Sea in a way that U.S. officials say was very aggressive and dangerous. Here we're showing the video of it. It got so close to that U.S. aircraft that the aircraft could actually feel the turbulence from the wake of that fighter jet. We should note that aircraft was manned. And so Austin here is really reiterating the the need for China and the U.S. to have these military-to-military communication channels open so that if something like this happens, for example, and there was a collision, there needs to be some channel open so that the two countries can avoid a miscommunication that could then spiral out of control. As of right now, China has continued to refuse to reopen those military-to-military channels, even though the Defense Department has been pressing them for months and months to reopen those lines of communication. Erica. Natasha, we will take it. Appreciate it. Thank you. That 70s show actor Danny Masterson found guilty of raping two women after a jury deliberated for six days. The punishment he is now facing. That's just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Do you have a ring camera? Do you use Alexa? I don't, but a lot of you guys do, right? That's what you thought was private. Right, you did. Maybe it's not. Amazon now has agreed to pay more than $30 million, settling a pair of federal lawsuits over privacy violations tied to these devices. When it comes to Alexa, the FTC says the company deceived parents by holding on to data on kids' voices and location for years. And when it comes to the Ring camera, the government says Amazon used to give every employee full access to all customer video and says that at least one employee used that access to look at pretty girls while another watched a fellow employee's stored video recordings without her permission. In response, Amazon says, while we disagree with the FTC's claims regarding both Alexa and Ring and deny violating the law, these settlements put these matters behind us. Joining us now is Lance Ulanoff. He's the U.S. editor-in-chief of Tech Radar. Maybe it puts the issues behind Amazon. I don't know that it does for the millions of people who use both of these right. devices. Two-part question to start you off. How surprising that they had all this data to you and also how concerning? 
not surprising because that's how these systems work, that they use this data to train systems to understand, get your utterances right, uh, even train on your own voice so they know it's you, you know, Poppy versus Erica. So it knows the difference. So I'm not surprised. And it, it, it is worrisome that it happened. Uh, I talk to Amazon a lot. Uh, I just spoke to them probably a month ago. And I know that the difference between 2018 and now is quite a bit. They've been learning a lot. I think every single tech company was incredibly sloppy with data as they were learning about what it was going to be like to put these smart devices in our homes. They did a terrible job. They also did a terrible job of communicating what they were doing with the data, what they would not be doing with the data, and how do you control it? Because that's the thing. So many people don't realize you can go into your Alexa app right now and see every utterance, every recording that, that has been on there. Like if you said that, yeah, go ahead and take because most people don't even check, it's all there. Every time I asked for the weather, it's all there. Can you delete it? Yes, every single one. You can delete all of them uh, by yourself. You can ask Amazon to delete your entire account. We know that Amazon is about to delete any child record that is older and untouched for 18 months. So that's all about to go away, uh, all of that stuff, including anything that they use to train current systems. How do people delete it? So go into the app. Uh, you can look at it. Uh, it's in, under settings. It's under activity. And you'll see recording. You'll actually see the words. Mm. And you can also hear the recording. You can just delete them. And one of the things that's interesting is that parents, this is one of the ways parents discovered that their kids were engaging with Alexa, mm. asking silly questions, you know, buying things. You know, that's where Amazon really had to up its game and say, oh, the kids are engaging with this device and using it, and parents are not ahead of it. So we have to get ahead of it. What is, at this point, the companies didn't quite understand it, consumers likely didn't quite understand it in terms of our information, how it's being yep. used, how it's being stored. What is a realistic expectation of privacy from a consumer who has Alexa, who has Ring, or something similar? It's full transparency. We have to have, you know, we don't really have a data bill of rights per se. We need to have complete transparency from these tech companies up front. Now, when you install them now, you do get a lot of information about what you will share, what you don't want to share, opting in, opting out. And people tend to install these devices and these apps very quickly mm -hmm. and don't pay attention. So, but again, it still falls on Amazon to do the hard work because you cannot expect consumers who are not technologists to dig into this. Make it as simple as talking to the device and say, delete all my utterances for the last two weeks. One thing that I find really striking is that Amazon has said and just recently reiterated as recently as January that privacy is foundational to its business. Yeah. We had the vice president of trust and privacy talking about that. And now the, now the question is, what more can be done to protect them? Right. Well, again, when you have these these cases, which started in 2018, are just wrapping up now. A lot has happened in between. I've gone to a lot of Amazon events where a huge part of it is about security and yeah. privacy yeah. constantly. But then they do something like Sidewalk, which um, uses all the devices and creates like a little mesh network. And they initially did it and didn't tell everybody that they were sort of opted into it and had to kind of go and say, oh, no, no. OK, okay. you guys don't have to be a part of that. So Amazon is learning. Uh, you know, by the way, with the ring thing, what happened there, they bought that in 2018, mm -hmm. right? So after this had happened, and of course, ring again, oh, let's put video cameras throughout the house. What's that going to be like? What's it going to be like when thousands of people can see the data and we don't really have? They didn't have encryption. They didn't have, you know, two-factor authentication. They added all of that actually back in 2018, 2019, 2020.
Lance, thank you. We'll track this closely. We appreciate it. Thanks. Pleasure. CNN This Morning continues right now. Did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified what do you mean, not after. Really? Not, not that I can think of. Morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. It is Thursday, June 1st. My friend Erica Hill is here. Good morning. Nice to be with you. And it's your mom's birthday. Hi, happy birthday, mom. She's probably <laughs> awake and watching now. I hope you are. Hope it's a great one. Uh, let's begin here with the news. That was former President Trump being asked about his handling of classified documents when he left office. Now, federal prosecutors have Trump on tape acknowledging that he held on to a classified Pentagon document and telling people he can't share that material. What this new audio recording could mean for the investigation. Plus, the debt limit deal now heading to the Senate. What to expect with just days remaining until the projected default date. And a daring rescue below Mount Everest summit when a Nepali Sherpa sir saved a climber that he found clinging to a rope. It is amazing. We can't wait to tell you about it. CNN This Morning starts right now. Here's where we begin this morning with first on CNN reporting. Sources tell us there is a tape of former President Donald Trump admitting that he held on to a classified document from the Pentagon and suggesting he wants to share the information, but that he is limited by his post-presidency ability to declassify records. CNN has not listened to the recording, but special counsel Jack Smith has it, and sources describe it as an important piece of evidence in the possible case against Trump. Here's why. It undercuts his argument that he just declassified everything, and it shows that he knew he wasn't supposed to share sensitive information with others. We are told the recording is about two minutes long. It's from July 2021. And in it, Trump talks about a document involving a potential attack on Iran. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reid helped to break this story. She has all her reporting on it. Why is this so significant? It's so incredibly significant to the special counsel investigation because investigators can hear Trump in his own words uh, confess that he has a classified document at his golf club in, Mar in Bedminster, New Jersey. And then he also acknowledges that there are limits to his power to declassify once he left the White House. And those statements undercut every public defense he and his lawyers have ever given. Federal prosecutors have obtained a recording of former President Donald Trump acknowledging he held on to a classified document about a potential attack on Iran after he left the White House, according to multiple sources. The recording is of a meeting at Trump's Bedminster golf course in July 2021. Among those in attendance were Trump aides and two people working on an autobiography of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Meadows was not in attendance, but at this time, Trump was having aides record conversations with writers and journalists, so he was aware he was being taped. CNN has not listened to the recording, but multiple sources have described it and say it indicates Trump understood he retained classified material after leaving the White House, despite what he has said publicly. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. Sources say he can also be heard acknowledging the limits of his ability to declassify material after leaving office. 
The remarks appeared to be in response to this New Yorker article published days before the meeting, claiming that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, was concerned Trump might set in motion a full-scale conflict that was not justified with Iran. Trump appeared to be angered by this report and said he had in his possession a document that showed Milley's plan to attack. CNN is told that the document was not produced by Milley. His spokesman declined to comment to CNN. It is also unclear if Trump actually showed the document during the recording. Trump's former national security advisor says he absolutely should not have had that document. I have very little faith in Donald Trump's credibility. He could have had a rolled up uh, carry out menu in his hand, waving it around, saying it was a Iran uh, draft war plan. The recording is a key piece of evidence for special counsel Jack Smith. His investigators have questioned witnesses about it, including General Milley himself. Trump's attorney, Jim Trustee, was asked multiple times whether there was any evidence that Trump had declassified this document. He would not answer. The president, under the Presidential Records Act, has unfettered authority to do what he wants with documents that he's taken from the White House while president. I am not going to sit here and dignify leaks that are incomplete, that are unfair, and that are dishonest. This is a leak campaign. He also would not say how this document wound up in Bedminster. I am not going to try the case that's being set up by leaks that I don't believe are accurate. How did, has the document been returned to the National Archives? Same answer. The story was not the result of a leak. It was the result of dogged reporting by our entire team. Up until now, most of the reporting has focused on classified documents found down in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. But this new reporting reveals at least one classified document was for a time in Bedminster, New Jersey. Now, this new recording, this really shows the extent of the legal jeopardy the former president is facing. Paula Reed, to you, to the whole team, you, Caitlin, the five women who worked on this story did an incredible job. Thank you, Paula. A bipartisan debt limit bill that just cleared through the House is now headed to the Senate. And if it passes there, it would then be signed into law by the president and allow the country to avert a default and in turn a global economic crisis. You see the countdown clock there. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy taking a victory lap following the bill's passage in the House last night. I wanted to do something no other Congress has done that we would literally turn the ship, that for the first time in quite some time we'd spend less than we spent the year before. Tonight, I hope we proved it to you again, that we put the citizens of America first. President Biden congratulating McCarthy and Democratic leaders, writing in a statement, I have been clear that the only path forward is a bipartisan compromise that can earn the support of both parties. This agreement meets that test. I urge the Senate to pass it as quickly as possible so that I can sign it into law and our country can continue building the strongest economy in the world. So what's in this bill? Well, just a reminder, Republicans fought hard to expand work requirements for food stamps and to make cuts to IRS funding. Democrats blocked the implementation of work requirements for Medicaid. The debt limit, of course, will also be suspended. That's through 2025. Non-defense spending will be capped. Student loan payments will restart at the end of the summer. So now, having passed the House, the big question this morning, will this pass in the Senate? Joining us now is Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, 
He also serves on the Appropriations and Foreign Relations Committees. Uh, Senator, good to have you with us this morning. You have said you will. Thank you. It's, you have said very clearly you will be voting against this bill, going so far as to say, I fully recognize a debt default would be a disaster for working families, must never be allowed to happen, but that there's virtually nothing in here to match what the people of Oregon care about. I can't throw them under the bus. I will vote no. Has the president reached out to you personally in an effort to change that vote? Uh, no, 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 he hasn't. His, his team has. They, they lobbied quite heavily. But listen, there are three fundamental problems with this bill. Uh, one is that uh, it reinforces a cycle of hostage taking. Uh, now we know that instead of having a, a legitimate negotiation, we'll end up with the Republicans, whenever there's a blue president, uh, saying, uh, we're going to do this again. This is the sort of battle that should happen over the fiscal year 2024 spending bill and the revenue bills that we pass, not over a artificial debt ceiling where the threat is to throw the economy off the cliff. The second big problem is that it goes against everything Oregonians are telling me. I've held over two dozen town halls, and in those town halls, just this year, two dozen town halls, people are saying, you got to take on daycare, you need to take on mental health, you need to take on fentanyl, and above all, the cost of housing. This structure does damage to everything Oregonians are concerned about. And finally, it's devastating in terms of fighting climate. It puts in a mountain valley pipeline exempt from any environmental law. And it says if there's a court case, we're going to change the venue. That precedent directly attacks the integrity of our judicial system. So all of this together is a big problem. I'm going to stand up for the people of Oregon. I'm going to vote against this bill. In terms of that Mountain Valley pipeline specifically, your colleague, Senator Tim Kaine, has talked about proposing an amendment that would strip that out of the bill. We know that if there are votes on amendments, of course, if they were to pass this, would send this back to the House. This is a further issue when it comes to timing. But is that an amendment that you would get behind, even if you knew that it may not change things? I absolutely support that amendment. I uh, would solve two of the really egregious provisions of this bill, and there are going to be amendments voted on. Uh, House, the Senate, the Republican Senate members are going to insist on amendments. I think it's a legitimate amendment. And by the way, that was the one thing in this bill that came more from the Democratic side due to the side deal that had been pursued by the president earlier. Uh, so uh, Republicans voted against it before, so it should do nothing if we pass this to damage the uh, repassage of this bill in the House. As we look at where things stand this morning, do you believe this bill, I know you're not voting for it, but do you believe it will ultimately pass? Yes. Yes, it will pass. The, the votes are there as demonstrated in the House, a parallel situation uh, in the Senate. So, but you are seeking your claim on this. I'm going to leave the debt ceiling there because, and the debt bill there, because I do want to get you on a couple of other notes, of course, because you are on foreign relations. What we have seen in terms of an uptick in activity in both Ukraine and in Russia has obviously been a hot topic this week. We're talking about the drone strikes in Moscow area, in addition to further activity in this Belgorod region on the border with Ukraine. We spoke with John Kirby yesterday, who said, while the White House, of course, supports Ukraine's right to defend itself, um, they do not support Ukrainian attacks inside Russia. We don't know that Ukraine was behind those attacks. They've denied any involvement. Do you have any information on who may be responsible? 
No, there's nothing more that I can share on that. I mean, we did have these reports of, of Russian troops themselves turning and attacking other, other Russians. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's very troubling, obviously, to Putin. And Putin wants to shelter the Russian people from a sense that there's really much going on there. So he's controlled the media. And then to have uh, uh, drone attacks on, on Moscow, uh, this changes uh, the dynamic and the conversation inside Russia. Uh, there's a lot of concern about just how it would manifest itself. Maybe it increases support among the Russian people for the war but certainly it draws it to their attention in a way that Putin has been trying to prevent. There are also questions about um, if Ukraine were behind attacks, if weapons that had been supplied by the U.S. or, the, or NATO members had been used in that attack, what that could mean. Does any of this give you pause in terms of U.S. commitments to continue to supply Ukraine with weapons? Well, it would be a big mistake to use our weapons in a fashion that's not allowed because we've been working so hard to maintain the coalition with Europe. Listen, we're defending a republic against a KGB thug dictator, and uh, if we fail in that, it will encourage other dictators around the world to take over adjacent land, maybe including Russia to take over more adjacent land, China to launch a military assault on Taiwan, and so forth. We have to stand with the people of Ukraine, and they have to use the weapons in accordance with the rules we've set out for them. Senator Jeff Markley, I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Great interview. Today marks the first day of hurricane season, but some communities are still picking up the pieces from last year's major storms. It includes, of course, Hurricane Ian, which wiped out major areas around Fort Myers, Florida, in September of last year. This year, NOAA is predicting a, quote, near normal season. Five to nine hurricanes is what they are estimating. Our Derek Van Dam is live in Fort Myers this morning. Gosh, I can't get those images from last September out of my head. Uh, com communities destroyed boats on top of restaurants. I mean, they're really still picking up the pieces. Yeah. Yeah, and what I've seen here is a group of very resilient people that are trying to get back to some sense of normalcy after the costliest hurricane to ever, one of the costliest hurricanes to ever strike the U.S. coastline, Hurricane Ian, just eight months ago. I'm at ground zero where 11-foot storm surge and 155-mile-per-hour winds came in off of the Gulf of Mexico, which is directly over my shoulder. And now what looms heavy over the minds of the residents here within Fort Myers Beach and Lee County in particular is yet the start of another Atlantic hurricane season, which is today. And fitting with June 1st is, unfortunately, the potential of development. New this morning from the National Hurricane Center, a 50% probability of tropical uh, depression or tropical storm forming in the waters that you saw behind me in a moment ago. Look at this. You can see structures that have been completely removed off of their foundation, still overturned vehicles. That is from the force of what was a Category 4 monster hurricane. We are on location at this beach. Baptist Church on Fort Myers Beach, which now serves as a food pantry. And you can see the destruction here. There's 50,000 residents and commercial buildings that were impacted by Ian eight months ago. And get this, Lee County alone has cleaned up an estimated 11 million cubic yards of debris. That's concrete and uh, wood pallets. That is equivalent to filling up 3,000 or more Olympic-sized swimming pools. I spoke to a manager of a restaurant here on Fort Myers Beach about how they feel about this upcoming hurricane season. Have a listen. We're just hoping it, it doesn't happen again. Uh, it'd be really bad luck if it did, especially after we just opened up to the public again. Uh, so hopefully it just stays away. Uh, it doesn't make me nervous. I mean, I've lived here my whole life. But um, right now, everybody's just kind of excited that we've opened back up. 
So everybody's ready to just get back in there. You know, I spoke to a resident here who lives in Fort Myers Beach about this upcoming hurricane season, and she said, and looked me straight into the eyes, we're not participating in this year's hurricane season. <laughs> we are not available. Best answer ever. <laughs> oh not available. Goodness. I wish them calm. I may the... not either. I'm following No your storm, lead. right? Yeah. Derek, thank you. <laughs> exactly. We'll just skip right over to January again. Yeah, let's go to Blizzard. <laughs> thank you. Uh, some new reaction this morning to CNN's reporting about a tape of former President Trump admitting he held on to a classified Pentagon document after leaving the White House. Also, Trump fired the government's top cybersecurity official days after Chris Krebs declared the 2020 election, quote, the most secure in American history. And now the special counsel has questions about that new reporting from The New York Times ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Former President Trump is no stranger to making a lot of comments that make a lot of headlines caught on tape between the Access Hollywood tape that emerged just before the 2016 election to the recording of him asking Georgia election officials to, quote, find votes to help him change the results of the 2020 election. Now, his history of potentially damaging audio tapes... Adding a new chapter, as we've been reporting this morning, federal prosecutors have obtained a recording of former President Donald Trump acknowledging he held on to a classified document about a potential attack on Iran after he had left the White House and also suggested in that recording that he wants to share the information but was limited in his ability to do so by his post-presidency ability to declassify records. Joining us now, CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent at The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Maggie, great to have you with us. So the way this has been detailed to our team of reporters when they broke this uh, about the recording, there are sort of three parts to it, right? The fact that there was this document uh, reportedly, that there were conversations about it, and that the former president acknowledged in those moments he wanted to share it, but there were those limitations. That really gets to a number of the you know, quote unquote, explanations that we've heard from the former president. And these don't square. No, look, there's been a lot of news breaks in this documents investigation, various news outlets. We've had some, you guys have had some. This one is, is very meaningful and is a big deal for the reason you just said. There, there, it gets to number one, documents that were in his possession, documents that he had with him at Bedminster, which is a different location than Mar-a-Lago, where the search had been focused. But more specifically, whatever that document actually was, because Trump is not the most reliable narrator about what that document was. And, you know, we know, and you guys have reported, Mark Milley did not actually produce this document. Right. What matters is Trump most is Trump saying, uh, again, I haven't heard the tape, I don't, no one has yet, uh, but our reporting is also that Trump says something about the limits of his classification abilities. Um, you know, he, he expresses some regret about not having declassified this particular thing. Uh, while he was president, that undermines the excuse that they have made over and over again, that he had this, you know, ability to de that he automatically declassified everything. I saw Jim Trusty on this network last night, Trump's lawyer, saying exactly that and then specifically not answering whether this document was declassified. So, and, yeah. And so I, I just I don't and see Caitlin's question, by the way, of is it now with the National Archives? That's right. Not? Yeah. And, and there's um, I understand why he doesn't want to answer those questions, but then don't go on TV to say I'm not going to sit here and not answer these questions, um, you know, other than making the client happy. I, I, this this tape is uh, multiple sources have described it as very problematic for Trump. Now, again, you know, this investigation is still ongoing. We don't know where it's going to end up. But of all of the evidence that, that we know of, this is the most damning I've heard of. And it reminds us there's so much we don't know about what yeah. prosecutors have. 
So much we don't know. And so much yeah. else that could be out there, especially when it comes to recordings, because <laughs> recordings are were, were made often with the former president. Well, so actually, you did, that's, I think, another piece that's really uh, striking to me about this. Uh, number one, Trump is very paranoid about people taking notes. And he's very paranoid about tapes. He was notorious when he was a businessman for claiming he was taping other people. People at Mar-a-Lago always thought that, you know, conversations were recorded. This was... He knew that he was being taped. That his own aides were taping because they... It's for a book. They, it, was, it was for a, a Mark Meadows book. That, and there's an irony to the fact that this relates to Mark Meadows, who, whose you know, sort of existence has, has been central to investigators in various parts of the January 6th investigation and so forth. Um, and he had not been a key part of the documents investigation that we knew of before. This is, this is significant. Um, but Trump was aware that they taped routinely his aides because they were taping all of these book interviews, my book interviews with him that same year were all taped. He, he was aware of it. So it's not as if this was some secret recording, but he has this impulse, you know, in certain settings to sort of show off. And that's really what this seemed like. You have some really interesting new, new reporting, you and Jonathan Swan mm-hmm. in, in The Times, about the particular interest the special counsel in the federal mm-hmm. probe, Jack Smith, has taken around Trump's mindset when he fired Chris Krebs. Mm-hmm. This was after Krebs said, look, the 2020 election was the most secure election we've had. He was the top cybersecurity official under Trump. Why does Jack Smith want to know what Trump was thinking when he fired Krebs? Uh, well, what we believe he's trying to do, as is the case of the documents case as well, and part of why this tape is important, it goes to mindset. It goes to what exactly he was thinking when he made certain decisions. And so is the idea, you know, that, that and these subpoenas relate to uh, personnel office officials in the White House, you know, who had compiled this dossier about, you know, a, a misdeeds that Krebs supposedly committed, which, you know, I think... A lot of people looking at it would have a different view. Um, but, but that's basically something that Smith is looking at is trying to figure out how the White House interacted with Krebs, with the DOJ, as various actions were being taken by Trump in relation to his efforts to cling this to power. The other probe. The Jack Smith. Sorry, is yes, overseeing. this is the important to differentiate. Yeah, yeah, correct. Right. There, there's a, Jack Smith's um, team is up to a lot, and so you know the documents investigation is the one that is sort of I think the most distilled and narrow fact set because it's clear we know what we're talking about. The January 6th investigation, and to your question about why does he care, there are so many different offshoots of that investigation, and this is one of them. And part of that, too, in your reporting in this piece, you also mentioned this quote-unquote loyalty test mm-hmm. around that mm-hmm. same time. That's important, too, when it gets to mindset, when it gets to where everyone was. Exactly. And they have been asking questions about this loyalty test, which my colleague Jonathan Swan uh, broke the news of when he was at Axios that this thing existed. But they were basically trying to, with political appointees, and, and Krebs was a political appointee. Trump had you know, appointed him. Trump had the right to fire him. Yeah. Um, but you know, trying to figure out whether this person was personally loyal or any random person was personally loyal to Trump versus, you know, the government at large is part of what Jack Smith's team has been asking questions about. Pretty solid byline, Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan. I'll take it. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, left and right. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. This is really interesting, Maggie. We appreciate it. See you this morning. Uh, Simple question for you. Are your airplane seats too small? Now, two Senate Democrats are calling on the FAA to take action. Also, what immigrants across the country are doing today to protest a new Florida law signed by the governor and Republican presidential candidate now Ron DeSantis. Airline seats back in the hot seat. 
Ba-dum-ching. Two Democratic senators calling for the FAA to reassess whether the size of seats on planes are, in fact, too small in the event of an emergency. There's new legislation from Senators Tammy Duckworth and Tammy Baldwin urging the FAA to conduct more cabin tests with, quote, realistic conditions. CNN's Pete Montine is joining us live. This isn't really about comfort so much as they say it's about safety, Pete. Yeah, that's right, Erica. You know, more seats on board an airplane, the airline's got to make them smaller. But with more seats, it makes it harder for the airlines to evacuate a plane in the case of an emergency. I just spoke to Tammy Duckworth about this, and she says this is all about safety, even though the unintended outcome here could be a federal regulation that makes it so that airlines can't make seats any smaller. Here is the rub right now. The regulation, sorry, the average seat size is about 31 inches on board a plane. It's called the pitch. That's the leg room from your seat essentially to your knee. It was about 35 inches back in 1960. But since that time, men are the example here. They've gained about 30 pounds on average, according to the CDC. They've gotten an inch taller. So the FAA looked at this back in 2019. They did a mock evacuation and they figured by doing this, they only sampled people who were over 18, under 60, no kids, no car seats, no carry-on bags. So Duckworth says it is long overdue to redo this experiment, and this bill would do exactly that. It is very much long overdue. The standard that the FAA is using was set in the 1960s, and the fact of the matter is air travel has changed a lot since the 60s. Uh, there are a lot of folks on board, for example, with carry-on luggage because we can't, many people can't check their luggage anymore because there's additional fees. Uh, the FAA doesn't test, uh, do these tests where they include carry-on luggage. Of course, the airlines would really chafe at this. More seats on board a plane means they can charge less, although, of course, they would say that if there are fewer seats on board, that means that fares would go up, Erica. I'm sure that is what we would hear. It's also interesting. So, so let's let's say this happens. When could we actually see any change? I mean, would they have to reconfigure all the planes that are already in operation? You know, the regulatory change takes a lot of time here. The good news is that the FAA really answers to Congress here, and it's going through its reauthorization process. The FAA gets told by Congress essentially how much money they can spend from the federal government. And so Congress has a lot of power. And so they could force their hand here to cause them to put into place a regulation, keeping it so that seats don't get any smaller, Erica. Interesting stuff. We will definitely be watching. Pete, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Netta, this Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's uh, policy on immigration sparking protests across the country. The so-called Day Without Immigrants is taking place in six cities in Florida, also cities across California, Colorado, Texas, Minnesota, Illinois, South Carolina as well. Latino business owners, many of them banding together with black, indigenous and other allies are banding together for a day of strikes against DeSantis's crackdown on undocumented immigrants. Carlos Suarez is live in Florida with more. This is across, you're in one of the cities where this is happening really across the state. What's their message to the governor? And I think most importantly, what are they hoping to achieve? A change in policy legislation? Well, I think they're trying to highlight the economic impact uh, that the immigrant community has on Florida's uh, economy. Uh, We are in Immokalee, Florida. That is a farming community to the east of uh, Fort Myers. 
uh, where we're told hundreds, if not thousands, of undocumented workers are set to take part in a work stoppage event uh, throughout the day here. Now, yesterday, we were in West Palm Beach, where the owner of a Mexican restaurant there told us that he has lost a third of his staff, a third of his workers have quit. Most of them were undocumented workers, and all of them, he said, are moving out of Florida because of this new immigration law. Here is a part of our conversation where he got a little emotional describing the impact that this new law is having on his workers and on his business. I have in this country 23 years. Working, working hard. Fortunately, I had the opportunity to open the, uh, to open the restaurant with my partners. And then we are not criminal. I feel bad because I opened the restaurant five years ago. I'm losing my business for one law. It's not fair. He said he's losing his business and that he is closing today in support of Florida's uh, immigration community. Uh, several businesses, restaurants, even the Catholic Church out here has said they are going to close uh, in support of uh, immigrants across the state of Florida. Uh, this new law goes into effect in July and it does a number of things. Uh, it requires uh, some businesses uh, to expand the use of the E-Verify program. That's a federal database uh, that employers have to use to check the immigration status of their workers. Some hospitals across the state of Florida are now going to have to ask their patients about their immigration status. And it is going to make uh, transporting someone in the U.S. Uh, illegally into Florida a third degree felony. Poppy and Erica. Carlos, thank you very much for that reporting. This morning, we are learning more about the victims and the loved ones impacted by that partial apartment building collapse in Davenport, Iowa, over the weekend. Brandon Colvin is one of five people who remain unaccounted for. His son, Brandon Colvin Jr., has been sleeping outside the building ever since it fell on Sunday. His mother says her son just can't leave the area. Now, Brandon Colvin Sr. had recently moved into the building and was living alone. Family members say they last heard from him on Sunday morning, and they remain hopeful he is alive. Colvin's cousins describes him as a great person and father. Thinking of all of them. Happening today, extreme heat forcing some schools to close in at least two states. Officials in Grand Rapids, Michigan, canceling classes today and tomorrow with temperatures set to reach the 90s. The Grand Rapids Public School District serves 14,000 students. Some of its schools don't have air conditioning. At least 40 public schools in Pittsburgh also shifting to remote learning today because of those high temps. Officials there recently announced that schools without sufficient air conditioning systems will shift to remote learning when temperatures hit above 85 degrees. Uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, legendary actors, longtime friends, yeah. and now both welcoming new babies. So when it comes to parenting, especially dads, is age really just a number? Harry Anton is here with this morning's notes. Wanna play guys? Okay. Have a play with you. Come on. Okay. Do you want to play rough? Okay. Oh, no. Say hello to my little friend. Al Pacino, that was 40 years ago, by the way, is the iconic Tony Montana in Scarface. Now, Pacino, at the young age of 83, about to say hello to another little friend. 
his fourth child. Ha, 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 ha. ha. We are ha. just full of funny moments this morning. <laughs> with his 29-year-old girlfriend, <laughs> Nor Alfala. Um, age may just be a number for many. Is this true, Harry Enton, when it comes to relationships, specifically parenting relationships? Our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, has a personal stake in this morning's number. I do have a little bit of personal stake. We'll get to it a little bit later. All right, this morning's number is... 53, because that is the age gap that we're dealing with in this relationship. It's a little over 53 years. That's why it's 53 plus a little bit more. And I was just interested, how common is an age gap that's 53 years? So this is the spouse age gaps in the United States. And break it down by getting wider and wider in the age gap in the relationship. Look, about 10% of relationships are 10 years plus. You get to 30 plus years, you drop down to a po about 0.5%, so less than 1%. Get to 50 plus years, look at that, 0.005. And let me give you an idea. We're dealing with such a small sample size, it could be somewhere in that area, but it's basically very, very, very small. And the other thing to know about age gaps is that they are, in fact, becoming smaller in this country. So the average male-female spa space age gap now is just 2.2 years. You go back about 50 years ago, it was three years. You go back to 1920, about 4.4 years. So the age gaps have shrunk in half on average. So also, congratulations to Pacino and his buddy Robert De Niro because they're both having kids a little bit later in life. What can you tell us? Yeah, so what about fathers newborn ages. Okay, the father's ages for newborns in the United States. Okay, age 40 plus. About 14% of the fathers of newborns are about age 40 plus. You go to age 60 plus, look at that drop down to 0.05%. You go down to age 80 plus, again, look at this small percentage. We're talking the smallest of the small, 0.003. And again, that's just an approximation. It could be even smaller than that. And the other thing that I'll note is that mothers in this country, we just got a new report, they're also becoming older. Age 40 plus, the share they make up of newborns back in 1992 was just 1%. It's now 4% now under age 18. That's dropping from about 5% in 92 to about 4% in 2022. And then the other thing I will just note is- Oh, I love this that. picture. My personal stake in this. My father was age 60. My mother was in her 40s when I was born. And I'd like to think I turned out okay. Stellar. Thank you. I like Stella. that this is on the full screen. Me, I'd like to think that I turned out okay. <laughs> Best picture ever, I hope. I hope mom's watching. Harry. She's not. Harry. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. And just like that, Samantha Jones has returned to the city while we're learning about Kim Cattrall's upcoming cameo. That was great, Harry. Thank you. I had forgot to send that to the team. Relationships have been on the decline since women came out of the cave, looked around and said, this isn't so hard. Okay, so you don't need a man, but do you still want one? Oh, honey, I want more than one. Ah, oh, she's back. <laughs> one of the key characters from Sex and the City making a much anticipated return, Kim Cattrall, who plays the sex-positive, powerful publicist Samantha Jones, is coming back for the second season and the reboot of And Just Like That on HBO. It is especially surprising after she famously told Variety last year that she declined to join the cast amid rumors of infighting. Joining us now on this and other CNN Entertainment 
uh, reporting that she has is our friend Chloe Malas. Good morning. This was the story that broke the internet yesterday evening. Okay, it's all anybody was talking about. And I'll tell you why. You hit the nail on the head. Kim Cattrall and Sarah Jessica Parker, they just don't get along. And we know that when they were filming Sex in the City for all of those seasons, that there was a lot of drama behind the scenes. But you've seen that with other shows. We know that maybe some of the Golden Girls didn't get along. And I know the horror of loving your favorite celebrities on screen. Sometimes they aren't the best of friends behind the scenes. So for Kim Cattrall to return is a big deal for all of us who love the show. And I got to say, and just like that, she's back. Okay. <laughs> just like just that. Like she- so here's what we know, though. I have a little bit of scoop. So we know that this was filmed in March. It was one scene. Uh, reports are claiming it was her in a town car, but that her name was not on the call sheet. Oh. She didn't interact with any of any other members of the cast. She was in. She was out. I just want to know how much she was paid. To I want to. You know what? Even more than that, I want to know what the conversation was that made her agree to do it. I mean, fans have been wanting her to come back. Uh, we know that the creator of the show has been wanting her to come back, um, and she had said. You know, it was bizarre the the way that she was sort of her absence was addressed in the first season. So uh, it premieres later this month on HBO Max. And so it's going to be a scene that we're all going to be waiting for. Absolutely. Two other really serious uh, headlines dominating the entertainment world this morning. Also that you have reporting on. Let's begin with Danny Masterson, the actor in the 70s show, found guilty of raping two women. Yes. So this actually came after the jury deliberated for six days. Um, They were hung on the third uh, account with the third woman, Jane Doe. Um, We have not heard anything from Danny Masterson or his legal team. But what I can tell you um, is that this comes after a mistrial. These same charges, we saw him face them in court um, and it was a hung jury before. So I do want to read to you what one of the women uh, is saying. Jane Doe, number two, telling CNN, I am experiencing a complex array of emotions, relief, exhaustion, strength, sadness, knowing that my abuser, Danny Masterson, will face accountability for his criminal behavior. Um, You know, we had a reporter in the courtroom, uh, Ali Rosenblum. We know that his wife, Bijou Phillips, uh, left the courtroom crying as he was led away in handcuffs. He has a hearing in August. No sentencing date has been set just yet, but we know that he could face 30 years to life in prison. Wow. That is a lot. And really quickly, only about 15 seconds, but no charges for Army Hammer? Yes. After more than a year of a Los Angeles Police Department investigation, the Los Angeles District Attorney announcing yesterday that they are not bringing rape charges against Army Hammer. He took to Instagram to say that he is grateful and that now he has to begin the process of rebuilding his life and his reputation. We appreciate your reporting, Chloe, on all that. Thank you very much. Thank you. A missing climber rescued from Mount Everest in an operation that's being described as not only very rare, but almost impossible. It is a truly remarkable story. Poppy's favorite story of the day. It is my favorite story Stay of the day. with us. We're going to tell you how it happens. A missing climber narrowly escaping death on Mount Everest. And Apali Sherpa Sherpa was guiding a client to the Everest summit when he spotted the climber who was clinging to a rope. Now, that person was shivering from extreme cold in an area that's known as the death zone because temperatures there can drop to minus 86 degrees. The Sherpa hauled that climber down some 1,900 feet over a six-hour period. 
In places where it was rockier, we could not drag him. We had to carry him on our backs with difficulty. It was important for us to rescue him, even from the summit. Money can be earned any time. Left like that, he could have died. We have saved his life by quitting the summit. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. The climber was eventually airlifted down to a base camp. A government official says this sort of altitude, this high of a rescue is very rare and almost impossible. The climber has not been identified, but is back home and safe, we are told, in Malaysia. And that is my favorite story of the morning. And with good reason. It's a great one. A nice way to end this morning. You have the day off tomorrow, my I friend. You enjoy. To enjoy my daughter's first play tonight at seven she years old. She is going to nail it. Tell her I said to break a leg, Thank please. you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Erica will be holding down the fort tomorrow, and I will see you Monday. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.